This programme was made with the support of the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland. Sit by my side Come as close as the air Sharing a memory of grey Wander in my world And dream about the pictures I play Of changes For much of the 20th century, Ireland was primarily known as a country of substantial net outward migration. Ireland had the highest net emigration rate in the European Union in the 1980s. But by the year 2002, Ireland had the highest net immigration rate in the European Union. Migrants to Ireland were of every type and condition, and for the purpose of this project, we are going to focus on a very particular group. Poets. Poetic Lives is a six-part series that follows the lives of six poets that, not having been born in Ireland, now live and produce their art in this country. Each programme is a blind date for the interviewer, who will only know the poet through the selection of poems and the brief biography sent to him by the poet. Following the path laid by the poems, the interviewer and the poet will talk about the life experiences and interests of the different poets and how they are reflected in the poems. All our guests have three common denominators. Poetry, migration and Ireland. From the Far East to America, from Africa to Europe, each poet will talk about expressing their very different experiences through the medium of poetry. Now it is time to listen to today's poet. I carry a scar with me, pink and soft to the touch, yet the survival could mean strength. My scar is invisible to your eyes, it is not on the brow of my eye, it is not some place on my thigh. No, not even my lovers come by. Sabr, patience. When the migration moved, trotting across snow and atop glaciers, on Himalaya's back, sheep, camels, whatever was left from our long march. Sabr, patience. We left them on the ice, our hands were weak, our hearts tired. No, we couldn't bury them. We left them on the ice, approximating the direction of Mecca, saying prayers and shroudless. Some left prayerless, squatting by the path, until the thicket of Himalayan snow covered them, and they too disappeared between tired memories and sighs of acceptance. Sabur, patience, given tomatoes to eat in India when we didn't know such fruits. We threw them into hot water, trying to make soups. The guards looked at us, puzzled. Where did these savages come from? And where were they going? We shrugged and walked on. Turkey gave us our names and land and food and hope, and together we went westward, questioned, where is your headscarf? Are you oppressed? Why do you meddle in what is between me and the greater? I carry a scar with me, 
a scar I have loved at times for reminding me of those hardships. I carry a scar with me, a scar I have hated at times for making me ambiguous, marking me with a name only few can pronounce. My lover tells me, let's give our child the name they can pronounce. But what if the child forgets? It is better than the burden. The burden is always there, my love. We all carry our own. Patience, sabr, as the old imam whispers into my ear at an age-old name-giving ceremony. Your name is Özgecan. Your name is Özgecan. Your name is Özgecan. My name is Özgecan Kisici, and I was born and raised in Germany. I've been living in Ireland for three years now, doing a PhD in sociology. I write poetry on the side as well, and my background is from Kazakhstan. Thanks a lot. <laughs> Thanks for coming. That poem doesn't describe your experience. It describes the experience of your forebears, isn't it? Yes, they were Kazakhs living on the border to Kazakhstan and China. And this was in the western part of China, what we know as Xinjiang now. And they ran into some problems in the 1930s with the government. And them and a couple of thousand families, as they were nomadic, they decided to leave their homeland. And they walked towards in towards China and then later on southwards where they ended up in India and that's what the poem refers to when they came to India because the British were there at the time and they gave them refuge in the camps and it was a completely alienating experience of course a lot of them did pass as they were staying in these camps because they weren't used to the climate they weren't used to the food or the water but they stayed there then for 12 years and were later then granted a citizenship by Turkey, where my parents grew up. So my, my dad was born in Pakistan, so this was during the split between Pakistan and India, and my mom was born in Turkey. Then you come from a long tradition of migration. Yes. And your own life has been one of moving because you were born in Germany. My experience in Germany, it wasn't any different to the Turkish migrants' experience in Germany, right? So my, although my father, he didn't uh, go to Germany as a guest worker, as the majority of the Turkish migrants did, he went much later uh, to work in radio, actually. He was working for Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty at the time, which was based in Munich. So this was the 19, end of the 1970s and the 1980s. In terms of experience, I mean, even my childhood in Germany was one very international childhood. I was, because my father was working for, for the, uh, the American radio, I was sent to an international school, hence the slightly American accent as well. And my friends were from all over the place. That will bring us to the first poem. Let's listen to your experience in Germany. Yes, I wrote this series of poems called Borderlands, which looks at the different borders that exist or don't exist. And this one was about the metaphysical borders. So what is between us and what is out there? And the you I talk about in this poem is something that can be, you know, it can be um, for everyone else, it can be a different power or <laughs> supernatural being or whatever, you know. So this is Borderlands 3. How many times have I wondered about you walking down Speyerer Straße, 
when reaching out and tapping at the moon you so meticulously fixed on a black sheet scattered with perfectly ordered specks of dust seemed plausible. When you insufflate us with balmy spring splashes, teasing our cheeks and eyelashes, and knowingly track each fold of my poem, patter the back of my fingers, and hover for an instant, leaving a preordained print on the tips, how then could I not wonder? Listening to you, I just thought when you pronounced the German street there, how many languages this woman <laughs> is able to speak or to understand? I like to say five and a half. <laughs> I mean, I grew up with three languages. So that is Turkish at home. We spoke mainly Turkish at home. And of course, as I was growing up in Germany, German, plus I was going to this international school where we spoke English. And it's probably one of the reasons why I write English is it's the language I first learned to read and write in. And later on, I went to live in Kazakhstan, where I practiced my Kazakh skills and improved on them. I, I knew some basic Kazakh from home, but it wasn't very good. And I studied French like every other child at school and later on did an exchange year in France. And now I'm learning Russian for my research, which looks at a period in Kazakhstan where the Russian power was very influential. So a lot of the documents and everything are, are in Russian. Up to now, we have a clear picture of your really multilingual, multi-ethnic background. But let's go back to the time where you were growing up. How was that experience? How were you seen in Germany? Well, there are different levels to these. I mean, one of the main things in Germany, I mean, my name was Turkish, absolutely. I was a Turkish citizen because when I was born, you just adopted the citizenship of your parents, not based on where you were born. So um, I was a, a Turkish citizen until I was 18. And in that regard, I was seen as, as Turkish, obviously, even though we had our little, you know, cultural Kazakh associations and we had our little events that we did back then. But then when, when you go to Turkey, and this is something a lot of people with Turkish backgrounds will say to you, is that... You were regarded as Alamanju, which means, you know, of Germany, a Turkish person of Germany, which means as a child, you you know, when you say something wrong in Turkish, you're made fun of or, you know, they make jokes about it. N not in a mean spirit, but <laughs> all in good spirit. And at, at the same time, though, coming from Kazakhstan, a lot of people, of course, Physiologically, Kazakhs do look very Asian. So if we were, for instance, playing on the streets with the with the relatives or we were like children and being children and mean sometimes, they'd say, oh, look at the Japanese. They're all here, you know. And, and we'd hear this and we'd be like, hey, we're not Japanese. <laughs> But this this was something that was very prevalent. And, and you still see it sometimes. And sometimes it goes to the point where people don't assume you understand what they're saying and, and you hear them talking about you, which can be <laughs> quite unsettling or funny, depending on how you take it. In terms of the moving back and forwards, it was very, very similar to that of other Turkish ch children in Germany, which was spending the summer vacations in Turkey. And this was weeks and weeks of, you know, just hanging out with your cousins and doing things that Turkish children did. So I'll read this poem, which is called Mulberries. 
I think of makeshift swings and walls we climbed to cross houses in Istanbul's suburbs. Our knees scraped whitewash as stray cats joined our games. I recall the candied taste of salty corn cobs as we squatted by dusty roads and let succulent corn juice flow past our shorts and elbows, creating puddles for our toes and plastic slippers. At times, the reality of this escapes me, our lives so jubilant, cousins forever, as we snuck up onto Grandpa's terrace and stole mulberries from Hasanamja's tree. Sticky fingers marked summers in Turkey, either wrapped around cornettos from Dursunabi's shop or cupping syrupy peaches in our palms, the ones our mothers brought from the bazaar. We strolled through tea gardens by the sea, playing card games and letting sweet hookah flavors tickle our senses, turning our escapades into rituals, stretching them out neatly into weeks, as summer loitered in unison with us. We reckoned the sea would be there for hundreds of summers together. Fragrant evenings would draw out and muezzins call for prayer each morning before the sun snuck up. They transformed gradually, Time, true as we learned to put on grown-up faces in distant countries, leaving Grandpa's house empty and furniture older than us to collect dust. And this, we spend honeyed nights lying on the roof, falling apart, letting cigarette smoke and gossip drip lazy through our lips. Those summers in Turkey, what they see, what they hear from you, what your passport says, not much the other. And I'm sure that that has happened in the different places that mm. you have been. How does a kid deal with something like that? Because mm. it has to be difficult at times. Yes, I think it it is difficult at times. And I think this is where my studies also come in, I guess, a bit. We haven't mentioned yet. Yes. What are your studies? My PhD deals actually with nationalism and nations and national identity and how these are formed. And I think a lot of my experience has always thrown up this question of what is identity and when is it based on a nation or how can it be based on a nation? And how do you define these identities? And I mean, what I came across is that in the news or in the media or through history books, we're sort of taught that the nations and the national identities, they're fixed and that they, they've always been the way they are. But when, when you look a bit deeper into history, you see that a lot of the time it's always been flowing. It's always been changing in a way. But, of course, you have different reasons for why we tell ourselves that they are very, very fixed or that they're based on a language or that they're based on a religion or ethnicity for that matter. So I think just as I was growing up, just realizing this or as I was studying this, it kind of made me feel more okay with this tension because, in a sense, I mean... We see this all over the place. Like People are moving so much nowadays. You see people with two, three different ethnicities or whatever. and um, But that doesn't mean that they're not a citizen of a certain country or that they don't belong there. And the debates, especially in Europe, about integration and all this has sort of highlighted that, I think, that you can't fix identities as such 
for decades. I think it's not possible. <laughs> That's interesting. But not all your poems deal with migration. I want you to read the next poem in a way that we change subject. Mm. This one's called Chimera. I have turned into a storm, whirlwinding through our lives, making you crumble at my touch. In fury, a quick glance back, and you still stand erect, your pieces strewn at your feet. With a slight shrug and smile, you will love me again and again until you become dust, syzygies spanned out hovering over your tornado. I shoot words at you to understand, but they pass you like water, leaving nothing but silent dew. Chimera as a title for a love poem. That's, <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I know what you, <laughs> what you mean. But um, I guess the author of this poem <laughs> sometimes feels that way, right? As as a chimera, uh, as a as a as a monster, as someone who's being awful to the person who really, really loves him or her back, and this really deals with, I think, the perhaps the guilt of being of feeling as though you. Are hurting the person you love the most, and we do this all the time, don't we? We we do hurt people that we love the most, and and we feel bad about it afterwards. And what was wondrous for me was just the fact that you could still be loved again and again, despite this whole thing, like this, despite the chimera, which of course is something that you build in your own head about yourself, which is not necessarily true on the outside. This is a poem that looks more at feelings more than the previous one that looked at experience, life experience, yours or your family. Mm. That's the two subjects that you look into your poetry usually? Um, I think so. I'm not sure, to be honest. <laughs> I've written a number of poems and I think, yeah, um, a lot of the time they either look inwardly at what's going on inside and... That's perhaps one of the reasons why I write so much because, you know, people say this all the time, but it is sort of good in a way to get it out on paper when you're trying to figure things out, right? And, I mean, like the other poems, I guess, the ones about identity and migration, they are also a way of processing what is going on and uh, who you are and all these questions. Just going through the poems that you have sent me, the poems that you have chosen for this program. Sometimes you mark important events in your life through your poetry. Yeah. The next poem is Henna. Yes. For Westerners, Henna is just something that looks into Eastern cultures. Henna, of course, it's in, in Eastern cultures, although it's not in Kazakh culture, but <laughs> I actually wanted this for my wedding. In Eastern cultures, you put Henna into the bride's hands and you can have them make really nice ornaments onto your hands. It is part of Turkish culture, though, though they don't do ornaments. And the henna night is the night before the wedding where the bride-to-be says goodbye to her friends and family, basically. And, yeah, it, it marks basically getting married. It's like a civilized hen party. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> That's right. Sorry, can I just mention that I wrote this poem one year after I got married, so which will probably be... <laughs> Explain. Explain. <laughs> okay, henna. It's been a year and the henna on my hands has worn off, 
leaving the trail of musky earth scent that simply won't fade. The henna disappeared far too quickly, if you ask me, after the wedding night and the goodbyes to exhausted and happy faces, watching the back of the bus, leaving me, the new daughter, behind. The crimson brown had already turned tangy yellow, as though I had spent the night peeling oranges and let the fruit spray its juice in intricate ornaments in my palms, climbing up to my elbows. The beautiful mess I had made, the quiet anxiety for letting them go, the back of the bus and tired goodbyes. Baba wrote me a letter, you know. The last time was when I left school. You have never disappointed me, he wrote. This time, he wrote, the only day I felt so excited was waiting in the hospital's corridor. The day of your birth, this day makes it too. And I wonder, can we make proud simply by being? The week before we bought a little tree, Baba and I, a marriage tree. We will note how much it grows from the day you leave, he said. It's been a year since we bought that tree, and it still seems so small to me. It's been a year and the henna on my hands has worn off, leaving the trail of musky earth scent that simply won't fade. You look at your family, at your life experiences. You come from a tradition where immigration and moving is normal. Mm -hmm. Like for other people like me, we have emigrated, but we don't come from that tradition. And how does your family react when you decided, you say, I'm leaving Germany and getting my new husband and <laughs> going to move again. Yes. Um, my family, yeah, like you said, they come from this tradition of migration. And so for them, it was completely normal. I mean, it was almost even expected that I would leave the country when went out to have my own family. Also, because uh, a lot of the migrants who went to Germany from Turkey, they always went with the thought of returning to Turkey, right? After having children or settling down, they didn't. So I think there was always this expectation or there was always this um, this readiness to leave. And so for the children to want to leave, it was completely um, normal and acceptable. Of course, it would be a different thing if I said I wanted to move to Australia or to, I don't know, California, somewhere really, really far away. I think that would have been difficult for them. But to say I'm moving around in Europe, that was almost expected, I think. One thing that is curious is that you still refer to yourself as a Kazakh when you are three generations mm two continents, yeah. five countries away from that tradition since your grandparents yeah. were roaming the lands of that region. That's not always the case among mm. many immigrants. How do you explain that? I think, um, I mean, one of the reasons I think is mainly because of the traumatic way in which my grandparents had to move and the memory of that has lived on through I think through the generations there are no official numbers but they speak of about 18,000 people who left their homeland in China and 1,300 or so actually made it to India and a thousand of those died in the in the camps because of the harsh climate and the weather. So in a way I think 
these sort of tragic or um, traumatic experiences that are that are experienced by by certain uh, group migrant groups, I think um, you, you carry them on through oral literature, poetry, etc. I mean. I can tell you, for instance, that the song that I sang at the beginning of the program, that is a song that almost all of my generation's ethnic Kazakhs who, who experienced this uh, movement, they will have heard it at some point, either from their grandparents or from their parents. And the song is a remembrance to their homeland, basically. So I think partly because of that. And then, of course, we have other cultural um activities that we do. I mean, we, we have cultural associations, Kazakh cultural associations. There are exchange programs for students to go and see Kazakhstan and come back. And there is, I think, amongst the migrants of this movement, there is a deliberate, intentional way of trying to keep the memory alive. So I think that's the reason, yeah. Okay, we have done a trip, and you mentioned now the first poem, and I want to finish the trip in Ireland. Yes. With the last poem, you more or less join both your background and your day-to-day. Yes, I wrote this poem about a year or two after I came to Ireland, and... um, I think it's a love poem to Ireland, <laughs> is what I think, because I, I just love the culture here. I, I love that you have poetry, you have literature, and I mean, I've performed at a couple of those places where they have performance poetry, and I felt immediately accepted. So this is a poem for that, I guess. An open letter to the host country of an immigrant. Did they not tell you I ran away from homeland or else the land that raised me to join the ranks of the romantics, the sets of songmakers and wordsmiths? I left strict appointments and six-week notices where the weight of having to-dos undid me and bureaucracies took out the human from society to come to a place where your grands and no bothers get dropped on the daily. Ireland, take me, for I have no place to be apart from what's in me and a distorted memory of where I really should be, stretched out masses of land where horses supposedly run free and falcons are caught at the arm. Take your walks through me, and through me let's have our talks about famines and what colonizers left behind. You and me. They left behind you and me. For this I have come to stay, this is our place to be. Ireland, have me. Soak me near seven seas and spit me out at the edge of your cliffs, or else roll me up by Dunleary. Raise me onto the back of your mountains and topple me into your mind valleys, into your print valleys, into your pages and ink valleys. Ireland, love me, as a lover does the first three years. But don't break me, don't assimilate me, and don't discriminate me, for I have cracked again and again in a place called Turkestan, in the sweet nans of India, the trickling waters of Bavaria, and the sunsets of Anatolia. This is all I bring with me. Receive me, accept me, and make me a token of what Ireland could be. I think that it's a good way of finishing the program. Yes. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Thanks for coming. Thank you so much. Where in hell can you go? Far from the things that you know. Far from this concrete sprawl that keeps crawling its way. 
thousand miles a day Take one last look behind Commit this to memory and mind Thanks to Azkachan Kesichi for sharing her poetry with us. This was the sixth and final program of Poetic Lives. The interviews were carried out by Inyaki Iriroyen. Thanks to Jennifer Matthews, Theophilus Ejo, Joe Horgan, Nita Mishra, Niti Kasia, and Azkachan Kesichi for sharing their poems and their lives with us. And remember that this series will be available on the webpage of Near FM for those of you who want to listen again. This programme was made with the support of the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland.